There are 30 years of biological evidence that when you trigger the emotions of curiosity, excitement, and enthusiasm, what you get is creativity, you get innovation, you get better planning for the future. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Hub podcast. This is your host, Agnes Uheretsky, and I have this great, great pleasure and honor to be joined by Professor Daniel Cable. Um, hi, Dan. Hey, how are you doing today? So I'm really, really excited to have Dan Cable on the podcast. As a way of, of introduction, maybe just to say one line from your book, it's on the page 135 of the book Alive at Work that we will be discussing in this episode. And it says here, it's clear that the human animal is built for experimentation, learning and innovation. And this is what the focus of this conversation is going to be. Just as a way of a short introduction, so Dan Cable is a professor of organizational behavior at London Business School, originally American. He is a two-time winner of the best article in organizational behavior from the Academy of Management, and he's been ranked among the top 25 most influential management scholars in the world. So thank you once again, Dan, for accepting this invitation. And May I ask you to tell listeners a little bit about yourself, your journey, your passion, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of good questions. Well, first off, thanks for um, having me on the show and on the podcast. It's, it's really fun for me to be able to talk about these ideas. And so getting them out there is, you know, most of the battle. So um, uh, in terms of me, I'm... I'm really interested in how we spend most of our hours at work. You know, I originally tried to become a work psychologist because it's interesting to me that, um, you know, work is pretty much what we do with our time, you know, more time than with our families and more time than with our hobbies. And so how we feel about work is pretty much how we feel about life. And so that's intriguing and very, very important to me. So that's that. And then it also is really interesting to me how the same work in terms of like the job title or the tasks can either be something that lights us up or shuts us off. It, lately, maybe the last five, seven years, it feels like I have been learning that it's less about the what of the work and more about the why and the how. <laughs> And I think that that's really important, especially for leaders who have to try to get the best out of people. It's so interesting how the stories that we tell ourselves about the work might be more important than the tasks themselves. So trying to help people put more meaning into that time would be one of my passions, I would say. That's great. Um, and so uh, you then uh, wrote this book. It's called Alive at Work, the Neuroscience of Helping Your, your People Love What They Do um, by Harvard Business Review Press. So how did you then get to the process of writing the book? Because there are a lot of case studies also in the book. So I guess it was part research and literature review, but also part talking to, 
to companies. That's right. And even helping them. But I think that the best stories and data in the book are when I got to go and observe and even gather data with partner companies. And that's really exciting. Others of them were just in classes. They were leaders in classes. And I would present some ideas and they would say, oh, oh, yeah, 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 we're doing something like this. And then as I learned more about their their journeys and took notes and sort of made them into these mini case studies, I sort of realized that the book would be far more salient to readers, you know, far more real if I could make it a patchwork of stories and studies as opposed to a set of ideas. And so I think it succeeded in that sense. I, as you say, I think that every chapter has at least two good, solid cases that that make the ideas seem more real yeah absolutely and and i think that you know you you really marry this f me who is a, a practitioner so not at all a, a an academic reader it, it really you give a lot of the meaty kind of research and the 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 experiments on dogs and rats and which is great that's right that's right <laughs> but then you take the reader to okay now what's going on in this little bank that i have to go and work in every day so i think that's what you say it really comes to life good thank you so much i appreciate it what piece of it um what piece of it do you think readers would you know in a little bit of time how can we kind of give these readers the best piece of it Okay, so let me turn to page page 87, and now we're just completely jumping out of the script that I had for this interview. Fine, fine. But there is one sentence that I absolutely wanted to ask you about. It says, it sounds a bit counterintuitive to many people, but play and experimentation are most important when things seem negative and threatening. And I wanted to ask you about that because... I mean, I'm a change manager myself. We work with organizations as well. And just when the going gets rough, everybody is just kind of going back and, and reverting back to how it was and the safety. And, and so can you explain a little bit to listeners why it's so important to be even more safe in the creativity when there's a crisis? Sure. Well, one thing about a crisis and about when things are going to hell what we know is that's when change is most important and learning is most important. That is to say, if we ratchet back to what we always have done, that's exactly what isn't working. And this idea of needing at that point to explore and learn new approaches to old problems and to really start to empathize with customer needs so that we can address what they need instead of what we used to offer. I think that that is just so um, important, but not obvious. And so in terms of um, what people usually do, and, and frankly, what some business schools teach leaders to do is to sort of create fear, you know, create burning platforms and create this sense of urgency. And I've even seen books about manufacturing crisis so that you you sort of create fear that things will just keep getting worse unless we change. And I think that the irony is that those emotions, fear, anxieties, that kind of stress, what they do is they lead people to focus on what's safe and what's already known, 
rather than being willing to experiment and innovate and you know the word play it gets a bad rap you know pl play many people think children many people think immature but what play is is just experimenting in order to learn you know puppies play in order to see what they're capable of um, children play in order to take on roles and kind of see how they fit how they feel uh, and I think the idea of practicing you know thinking about play as practice it's what we have to do in order to become proficient. You, you can't very well walk before you fall. But if you treat it so seriously that you're not allowed to fall, then it means you're never going to walk. <laughs> and, and I, think, I think a lot of these things I'm saying right now come off as very academic to many leaders. You know, what they'll say to me when I'm, when I'm talking to leadership teams is they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, we get it conceptually. But what you don't understand is we run a real organization. And so, you know, in the real world, what you don't understand is we actually have regulations and we have customers. So, um, you know, you have to be nice to play, but we just don't have the time. And I have to often help them understand it. Sometimes it takes days to kind of help them understand that if you proficiently do what doesn't work, that's the sure road to failure. But being open to what might work and by practicing and learning and becoming better at being relevant, that is the only way into the future. Uh, but it just doesn't feel natural to many leaders, I think. And I also think that it's, much larger than just innovation in the very narrow sense or play in the, you know, just people may associate this with the Macintosh lab of Apple, you know, but, but I think that even hairdressers and, and postmen, and you have a lot of these great examples in the book, which is not just, you know, Silicon Valley. But but everybody who is doing even an office job or nurses, everybody will be able to improve their work and to give better service. And so it's that kind of improvements, that kind of experimentation of do we take for granted what has seemed to work for years or do we now try to make it even better? And And I think that this, what you talk about in your book, this environment that leaders can create without fear that then can trigger all these tiny tiny changes that summed up can create huge difference that's right that's exactly right and i i think it's worth saying to listeners a little bit more about the emotions underlying innovation because you know one of the things that is uh, i believe it's a fact now you know i i, I hesitate to I hesitate to say that anything in science is the final word, but one of the things that seems very clear from 35 years of evidence is that anxiety and fear shut off the creative parts of our brain, and it also shuts off our ability to um, use the, our, our brain's potential, even in terms of things like math, even in terms of what's called nonlinear thinking, which is a form of creativity. Um, when leaders, when organizations provoke fear and anxiety, we go into a state of almost survival and our brains don't really understand that it's not life or death. Once that anxiety and fear kick in, uh, we, we sort of go into that, that state of shutting off 
play and shutting off creativity and shutting off long range planning and thinking and go into a survival mode. And, um, and, and just as fear and panic and, um, and anxiety can be provoked, that's one system. It's also possible for leaders to provoke the seeking system, this part of the brain that wants to explore and it wants to be curious, it wants to be excited, and it uses dopamine to get us there. You know, whereas fear uses cortisol, the seeking system uses dopamine, which, you know, kind of makes life feel more exciting. It makes life feel more effervescent and, you know, brings more enthusiasm out of us. And so I just find that it's really interesting to remember, again, these are facts. It's not that I'm hypothesizing this. I'm saying there are 30 years of biological evidence that when you trigger the emotions of curiosity, excitement, and enthusiasm, what you get is creativity, you get innovation, you get better planning for the future. Um, but you have to trigger those emotions. They, they, they don't happen when there's fear in the air. Mm. And I also like when you explain that fear is always stronger than safety. The negative is always stronger than the positive. The brake on the car is always stronger than the accelerator on the car. That's right. So you That's really right. need to counterbalance it in heaps in order to have that effect. That's right. Especially... You know, one of the things that I try to talk about in the book as quickly as possible without boring anybody is how when we invented organizations, they didn't need to change as often. And so the early industrialists used anxiety and fear to focus people on small, you know, predictable, repetitive, disconnected tasks. And they used a lot of measurement Uh, they, they used what's called scientific management, which is just a control system to say, if we know exactly what each job will do, then we can predict how all the jobs will fit together. But if we have one person that's being creative and innovative, then that ruins the whole production system. So a lot of early people management systems were set up to provoke fear and anxiety, you know, fear of missing the raise, fear of missing my bonus fear of getting fired, fear of getting yelled at by my boss. Uh, and so, uh, so many organizations just were not set up to prompt the seeking system. They were set up to prompt anxiety and fear. And so what, you know, what that means is um, many of us grew up thinking of work as something that Well, that A, didn't want to do, and that B, we had to do in order to make money. And so this new way of thinking, which is, well, we go to work in part because it's interesting and fun, and we go to work because it gives us a chance to innovate and play to our strengths, I would say that's pretty rare still. I would say that that type of thinking, even though, again, we can prove that it leads to more creativity and more innovation and more adaptability, I guess the point is, Henry Ford didn't want creativity and innovation. No. For him, that, that was error. For him, those were mistakes. <laughs> yeah. And, and also what this made me think of, I very early on in my career when I was still figuring out uh, who I was and what I wanted to do, I was working in the hotel industry. 
And in five-star hotels, and I think also four-star, but five-star hotels, you have almost as many staff as you have rooms. And they break down all these different work processes into small tasks, as you just said, and it's based on routine specialization, that somebody's doing the same thing over and over again. And look what happened to the hotel industry. It was disrupted by Airbnb. It's disrupted by all kinds of different, um, you know, new services that no longer, you know, just offer these blank interactions. So it's clear that this sector also would really need to have a level of innovation and experimentation. One way to think about this whole scaling up that we did starting in about 1900, you know, if you if we thought of that as a beta test. You know, the idea that rather than buying shoes from a cobbler in 1880, you're going to buy shoes from a Nike. You know, we go from three people to 64,000 people. If we evaluate that, that beta test, we can say there are certain benefits and certain costs. And one of the benefits clearly is that we can distribute and we can have R&D. You know, we can invent drugs because we can have investments of billions of dollars and hundreds of people who work on invention. We can ship those things all around the world. You know, we can make more products for more people cheaper. You know, there, there clearly are benefits from scaling up, but then there also are some costs in terms of uh, repetition, loss of purpose, alienation from what the final impact of your job is for all you know all, all the different activities what they add up to and so i think this idea of let's just say a hotel and thinking about on the one hand it allows us to have a consistent brand where no matter where you stay across the world there is a certain look and feel and a trust and so there are upsides to it but on the downside if it just becomes a commodity if it just becomes a set of activities that nobody really brings anything unique or special to, then it's sort of a race to the middle. And there's no way to wring a competitive advantage out of being in the middle, you know, of having a lot of efficiency and a lot of standardization. It just feels like plain boring to the consumer. And then what happens is the firms that can innovate that can add something exceptional, that can have incredible customer service, that can make the rooms unique, those become the organizations that somehow get out in front. So I don't know. It's really interesting just to think about the emotions of competitive advantage. Maybe, maybe it used to be this standardization. And so what you wanted was lots of anxiety and fears. You could put people into predictable boxes and maybe in the future, due to the speed of change, and as you talk about the sort of the transformations that keep rocking industries, um, maybe the new emotions of competitive advantage are curiosity and you know like enthusiasm for the customer. Absolutely. Let me ask you one more thing because what we always sometimes comes up in this podcast when we talk to our different guests coming from different backgrounds is that. Uh, Employees are treated as children. So this whole idea of, you know, I think a lot of resonates with your work as well, you know, keeping them in check, uh, using punishments as to, to 
regulate and organize them. So there's this infantilization of, of employees thinking we know what's good for them. And I always refer back to the millennials uh, as the UN uh, rights of the child generation, who, you know, which is 25 years old and the millennials entering the workforce are, you know, those children that grew up already with us being aware that children need or have a right to play, have a right to saying, you know, speaking their minds, speaking up. So it's almost as if this new generation coming into workforce is, is very much challenging already this infantilization of, you know, so I wonder if them coming in kind of helps your agenda, your mission, your, your messages. I think that's right. And I think there's actually three things. So we've talked about two. Number one is the speed of change and the sort of idea that firms need to adapt quicker and quicker to stay relevant. Number two that you just brought up is that the tastes, the demands of the newer generation are the activators of the seeking system which are, if we just tell them for listeners, number one, it's this idea of playing to your strengths and being able to bring your best self to work. That's more important to the newer generation. Number two is this idea about being able to play and experiment. Um, that, that's more important. And third is the sense of purpose, the sense of, I know why we do all these different activities. I have a personal sense that it adds up to something that I care about. Um, so the idea that the millennials and just the idea that the newer generation care more about those values, that's the second one. But the third one we haven't mentioned is AI, robotics, and automation. So nowadays, if you have a task that can be scripted in advance, that is very repetitive and predictable, that basically won't be a job in five years. And so those three trends come together to push this agenda of, well, then what are the jobs for the humans? What are the jobs that create a competitive advantage? And it has everything to do with innovation, creativity, and customer empathy. And so I just, I feel as though it's almost inevitable that firms that don't get into activating the seeking system will fail. You know, it may not be this year, it may not be this decade, but the writing is on the wall that they won't be able to keep pace and stay relevant. And the firms that are able to start activating the seeking system will thrive. Well, amen to that. I think a lot of the listeners are keeping their fingers crossed. <laughs> those who work That's in great. those kind of workplaces. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had, we, we, we speak a lot about, you know, when we speak to employees of organizations and meet people and they say, yeah, but management just doesn't get it. And you think, well, maybe we just need to wait for them to retire. I don't know. How can they... You know, how can they get it? Those who don't get it, how can they get it? Why don't we talk about that, if you'd like to? I mean, this whole notion that they sort of cling to the old like a lifeboat. You know, that, that whole idea that the structure and the measurements and the KPIs and the policies and the regulations and the control mechanisms these are very attractive, not because leaders are evil, but because they would want predictability, they would want 
quality. They would want on-time shipments. You know, we don't have to demonize leaders in order to say that many of us might act the same way if we were put in charge of 10,000 people. You know, one of the things that came to my mind earlier when you were talking about how, uh, you know, this sort of infel, infant, how do you call it? Infantilization. Infantilization, yeah. yeah. That, that word, it's almost like a sort of creative apartheid where it's like the leaders think that they're the ones that get to do the innovation and creativity and the workers just have to do the grunt work. And I think a lot of that might come out of this problem of um, lack of trust and just not in an evil way, but just my need as a leader to predict and control what you folks are doing <laughs> because I can't watch you all. and There's too many of you anyway. <laughs> and, you know, you wouldn't have had that problem in a shoe shop when there were three people. Um, and, you know, we were related. You know, it's just there's as part of the beta test that we were talking about before, part of the beta test of scaling up into these big organizations, um, we needed a way to control people that didn't deal with trust. And I think that KPIs and measurements and policies and rules were like the surrogates for lack of trust, right? And, and I think that what you said about bringing your whole self to work, we, we speak a lot and, we, you know, I'm, I'm partially obsessed with this idea of the ideal worker norm that we took take on new personas when we go to work. And I think so that's also kind of a partly also the responsibility of employees of wanting to seem to be somebody else because we think that's what's expected of us and that's what's expected of us. So there's not a lot of authenticity there, I think, from the kind of the get go. And then to build trust and these kind of things on top is quite, quite challenging. Mm -hmm. Well, if we just look at some of the data, it suggests that about 70% of workers are not engaged. They're not bringing all of themselves to work. They, they see work as a thing that they bring their body to, but they don't feel like they're allowed to innovate and try new things without being punished. You know, it has to go perfect, basically. Everything has to go perfect or they lose their bonus or they don't, you know, they miss their quota or in some organizations they get yelled at still. You know, you might have a, yes. a boss that's a yeller. So literally yeah. he or she comes in and yells at you for 20 minutes because you missed something. And never mind, you missed it because you were trying to help fix another problem. You know, that's not. Uh, so, you know, what we know is that uh, work just feels like a place where they can only get through it by kind of shutting off their creative energies and then I think the idea of having the emotions at work, you know, having the feeling of curiosity or having the feeling of enthusiasm, there's just no way for them to bring that because it's so repetitive, predictable, dull. Uh, they, they, they would love to have those emotions, but they kind of feel like they just have to leave those at the door or like save those for Saturday, you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, the, the thanks, thank God it's Friday and that whole thing, Monday yeah. motivation and yeah, Blue Tuesday and <laughs> yeah, 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 hot days Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just just to, just getting through to the Friday evening. Yeah, what I was really encouraged by and excited about in the book was how 
I think it's less to do with whole organizations and more to do with individual leaders, individual teams. And so, you know, like in my own experience, like there's one really cool example in there about KLM and how they started trying to fool around with social media, you know, six, seven years ago and how it's not like the whole organization tried to revolutionize itself at once. There was a relatively small team at Schiphol Airport that fooled around with, you know, relatively small amount of money. I think it was 10,000 euro. And they just spent three weeks kind of trying different approaches with social media. And some worked and sort of some didn't work the way it was planned. But they did work in terms of teaching them what didn't work. And, you know, here we are seven years later, and they're now one of the most relevant social media companies in the world. And in that situation, it wasn't as though management demanded the whole organization transform itself. There was an individual leader that said, how many of you people want to try playing with this? I created a little budget. I can give you a little bit of bootleg time. You know, you could just go experiment. We'll treat it as a, a sandbox or a learning lab. And I just think that if you read that particular story and you go and you learn about that case, it starts off with eight employees that just fooled around and then they turned into 25 employees. And now it's something like 75 or 80 employees that make 25 million euro using basically social media to connect with customers and sell tickets and hire out planes. And so anyway, there seem to be lots and lots of real life cases, many of which I kind of stuck in the book showing that it's not like you have to change a 42,000 person organization in order to be a leader that creates real movement in terms of how the work feels to the employees. And happiness is contagious. So if at least you can get one or a couple of your departments to blossom in this, then it will invigorate those around them as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. If um, listeners want to go check it out, there is a video that kind of makes that point even better on KLM. If you go check out, there's a KLM surprise video where they filmed a bunch of these people running around the airport, um, you know, kind of trying these different experiments. And, and um, if you look at their faces, it would be very hard to make them look that happy um, if their seeking system was not ignited. And you can just see the enthusiasm and you can just see how excited they are they're running around and um you know they're, they're it's almost like they become mini entrepreneurs and i i know that that would be contagious you know i know that that would be something that when they went back to their teams you know they would be kind of lit up the dopamine would be flowing excellent now before we go to the last question unfortunately time is always running very quickly here um can I ask you, Dan, to tell listeners where they can find the book, where they can find out more about your work, where they could perhaps connect with you? Absolutely. In terms of connecting with me, I have a website, which is dan-cable at uh, just .com. You know, that's one thing. Um, also, I do a lot of tweeting these days. So it's at dancable1. And I send out two or three things a day, and it usually is about articles that I've seen or TED Talks that I've seen that are on this topic around building psychological safety, around building an innovative culture, around getting the most out of employees while putting more meaning into, into work life. So, you know, those are two places to connect. 
And then in terms of the book, I mean, what I'd love to say is any good bookseller, man, would that be a great thing to say? <laughs> I think that more likely Amazon.com. <laughs> I would also say uh, you can go right to Harvard and they ship it all around the world. So that's two ways. But So I can always, I can just maybe repeat, it's called Alive at Work, the neuroscience of helping your people love what they do. It's a, it's a great read. I really recommend it. Um, for anybody who is interested in creating more meaningful life for themselves, for their employees, for their teams. Thank you, Agnes. That's really nice of you. And now coming to the last question, which is always the same on this podcast, if I could ask you then to give one advice to a CEO, what would that burning thing be that without the fear aspect of burning, but Absolutely. what would be the kind of <laughs> most the urgent? Yeah. Well, maybe I, the burning ambition. What should I be know. the burning ambition? I will well, check uh, myself. I will never use burning yes. platform ever again. <laughs> well, before you do, it's good to go learn what the lineage of that story is. <laughs> um, but anyway, I think that um, the phrases that use that I use in the book are humble leadership and servant leadership. And what this refers to is leaders remembering that they're just overhead. You know, leaders are a cost to the business. They, the only way that a leader creates value is by serving the people that actually do the work. And I know that that's not normal. You know, most leaders are power tripping and they're ego tripping and they, they feel like they're the center of the universe and they kind of feel like the employees are there to serve them. And so the most powerful and important thing to hear is something that lots of leaders don't want to hear, which is listen, try to understand the pain points that the actual workers are facing, and then work hard to remove the pain points, work hard to understand what the people that create the real value are experiencing, and try to understand how the world is changing so that um, the way that an organization creates value has to adapt and change. So I don't know, those are pretty important um, messages, but in my own experience, this again is something that is counterintuitive to many leaders with a lot of power. They're, they're often very reluctant to think that way. And, you know, here's the good news. Let me flip it around. The good news is leaders that are are able to think this way could develop a competitive advantage because it's rare, it's valuable, and it's hard to imitate. So the whole notion of being a humble leader that serves employees, that really stands out and helps you get better ideas and helps you get a team that really commits. I mean, here's the way to say it. You get a team that wants to follow you rather than you being somebody that demands people that follow you that don't really like you, that don't really want to follow you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also a, peop, a group of people that will want to take your company to the next level. That's right. That's right. I love the phrase volunteer army. I love the idea that they become a mission-focused, purpose-driven innovation group that are always trying to make the company better rather than begrudgingly accepting that you've got some dumb new idea that you need them to try to do. <laughs> well, that's a fantastic way to close off this really, really inspiring conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time and, and coming on this podcast. Great. It was a joy. And I hope that, um, you know, that everybody out there can use a little bit of this. <laughs>